1: Ego in check, me. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Tony Sattler possesses a comic brain that has served audiences a vast helping of laughter via a healthy diet of sketch and situation comedy on Australian television. Through classic programs such as The Naked Vicar Show and Kingswood Country, he has created a legacy of television that has not only caused mirth, but has left an indelible cultural mark. It is this impact that led the Sound and Film Archive to label Sattler socially significant. It is a description he laughs off, but these highly popular programs gave us permission to laugh at ourselves and influenced a colloquial language as folk borrowed the iconic catchphrases invented by the writers for the characters. Who hasn't uttered, leave the money on the fridge? You're not wrong, norel or pickle me grandmother. It was an absolute treat for stages to access Sattler's brilliant comic mind, to analyse the craft of comedy and evaluate what is funny. A fascinating conversation which also reflects on Tony Sattler's enormous comedy output alongside writing and creative partner Gary Riley. For fans of the Naked Vicar show and Kingswood Country it is great nostalgia. And as students of comedy you shall be rewarded with much amusement so you've got some notes there, Peter. Yeah I do my research. Oh okay <laughs> Riley of... Gary Riley are you seeing yeah. him? No, no, but I could at some stage. He lives in barrel now. Look at that: Chuck Chunder and the Space Patrol, RS Productions. I look forward to talking about all of that. <laughs> you are older <laughs> than I thought. <laughs> um, now, the last time I, I met you, you, you uh, remind me you talked about you were a person of national relevance. Or
1: ah, uh, what, uh, what no, was that about? Uh, we were um, socially significant.
0: <laughs> is the term. <laughs> because of the shows like Kingswood Country that you... Uh, well,
1: the, the reason suddenly I became, well, Riley and I both became socially significant is because um, uh, we were fed up with running Kingswood Country forever um, and we, like, seven had run it for, you know, its maximum amount, like, four runs, I think. The first, yeah, first plus three. And then um, Foxtel took it and they used it for, you know, they play it 12 times a day or whatever it is that they do. I never understood Foxtel, even though we get it for nothing because they gave it to Nolan for being old or something. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, I rang my mates at the National Film and Sound Archive and said, uh, look, we've decided to pull Kingswood off the air. And, um, uh, and there's 98 or 89 episodes, I can't remember. It was a combination of those two numbers anyway. And um, and said, look, do you want the master tapes? And they said, oh, oh yeah, I think so. Uh, hang on, we'll get back to you. And within five minutes they were saying, yes, def- definitely, really want it. And I said, oh, I'm surprised. I thought, you know, it's a bit lowbrow for you. <laughs> and he said, oh, no, no. No, it's socially significant, that show. And I thought, oh, fuck, I'm going to have that on my business card. Tony Sattler, socially significant. It's, it's great, isn't it? It's better than Order of Australia. Absolutely,
0: socially significant.
1: Although Order of Australia really should be O-O-A, shouldn't it? So it's And only Australia would have an O-O-R. <laughs>
0: Tony Sattler, S-S. <laughs> socially significant. Now, Tony, you've been responsible for making Australians laugh for many decades oh. and indeed um, viewers around around the globe. But what makes you
1: laugh? Uh, oh, I don't know, just silly things, I think. Um, I find that I actually make myself laugh because I suddenly say something which I didn't expect to say. I don't know how it happens, but um, I suppose it's too long sitting at a typewriter and thinking of. You know, ridiculous things. But um, I love, uh, I love, I used to love people like Bob Newhart and, um, yeah, a bit of Shelley Berman and Mort Saul. Um, uh, I was heavily into comedy when I was a child, watching things like, oh, the honeymooners with Jackie Gleason. Um, never got off on Flintstones or any of those things. Did you know that the Flintstones, Peter, was the first show to to knock off Picker Box as the number one rating show in this country? Now, isn't this bad? You're condemning Australia. <laughs> what <do> you think. <laughs> They, the, the, like the whole world was running around saying yabba yabba do" or whatever it was that Barney Rubble or
0: Fred Flintstone used to say. But by design, the Flintstones was a sitcom, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was based on The Honeymooners, oh, yeah. And the voices were much the same too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, particularly Barney Rubble was sort of carney ish
0: That's right, living next door. Yeah. Hey, Fred. Yeah. 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 Whereas Fred was this Impressive. boisterous, um, hey, Wilma.
1: Well, yeah, well, he was the Jackie Gleason character, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, I don't know what makes me laugh, really, because, um, I don't read funny books, although I'm reading just finished, or oh, 14 pages ago, I'm bulldozed the, um, Nicky Savva book about, oh, right. uh, Morrison and yeah. co. Yeah. He's uh, such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: If it wasn't so tragic, perhaps could laugh at it, but, uh...
1: Oh, oh, yeah he's just bizarre
0: mm. um, so storytellers were they a presence in your childhood? Um,
1: you
0: know, did you have that uncle who used to spin a yarn and
1: My grandfather used to talk uh, tell well, not tell stories, but talk about what he had done and he He was at, at the first landing at Gallipoli and um, and was also in the, uh, in the army in the Second World War. And he was um, retired as a colonel. And um, so he'd been an officer in the First World War and the Second World War. And used to, you know, we'd, we'd often say, tell us about such and such. And, you know, like a lot of those blokes, they didn't like to talk about things, but mm-hmm. eventually, you know, say things and point to his hand that a bullet went through and that sort of thing. But no, not a lot of stories there. My mother was a bit literal literate. Um, in fact, she's still around. She's 97 now. Um, and she wrote and taught. Um, she was a teacher. She taught languages, French, German and so on.
0: So you, indeed, crafting a career as a writer. Uh, words are obviously a lifeblood. Uh, were books important to you? As oh, yes. yeah. have yeah, always been a reader. Yeah, yeah
1: definitely. And, and um, uh, I remember seeing the Dick Van Dyke show and thinking, fuck, you can make a quid writing jokes. <laughs> <laughs> it never occurred to me before. And I, I mean, obviously, you never think about who writes the stuff. You yeah. think, oh, Bob Newhart is a very funny man. Yeah. Who knows who writes it, whether he did it or not.
0: Well, part uh, of it is the writing and then the yeah. delivery, is the execution yeah
1: but look at look at Hancock I mean he was a genius but then eventually killed the people who created him you know they fought, he fired Galton and Simpson anyway uh, Dick Van Dyke yes I thought oh shit I can be a comedy writer you know and make people laugh and it would be great and um, so I thought about that for a long time and then uh, I used to occasionally send in some probably pathetic lines to um, to the INT office in Melbourne, to know office, and uh, in the hope that Graham would use some of them, you know. And uh, in fact, they they actually they did use some, and uh, I, re- I remember the, I got paid a, a guinea, or something like that, for a, a few a few guineas over the years. Over the well, year or two, I tried.
0: And then they would own that for. Um,
1: oh forever I yeah. mean it was they, you know he'd just do jokes at night mm. you know because it was all going out live anyway it's not as if there's anything to own well Graham had that amazing um, uh, encyclopedic um, memory of jokes he uh, I remember because we looked after it for many years yes, of course yes um, and I wrote lots of stuff with, with him and for him and um uh, I remember he, he used to like to get, uh, when people were going to interview him, uh, he he would get them to fax in those days the questions, because, and a lot of journalists wouldn't like to do that, but they did, they had no choice, that was the rule. And and the, the reason he did it is because, so he could think about his answers, and, and because Ultimately, the interview that appears in the magazine or the newspaper or wherever it is, they're going to expect that Graham is going to be funny, which is fair enough. And if he wasn't funny, you know, people say, oh, he's a boring... (laughs) (laughs) And uh, anyway, he rang me one day and um, towards the end of his life, and he said, um, well, in the last four or five years anyway, uh, he said, I'm doing this interview tomorrow and one of the questions, the guy's going to say this and... I'm going to say, no. Ah. And I said, oh, yeah, that's that's good, funny. And, he, and I said, why are you telling me this? And, and he said, because you wrote that line about 15 years ago. And uh, and I said, oh, so you, what, you're going to send money to this address? And
0: he, <laughs> and
1: he said, oh, shit, no. No, I'm just letting you know I'm going to use it so that if you read the interview, you don't think I'm pinching it. Right. But you are, Graham. Yes, yes, all right, I am.
0: <laughs> How how difficult is it to write a joke?
1: Um, well, I mean, it depends what. I mean, you, you, the the word joke is sort of pretty broad, isn't it, as mm. far as what it encompasses. Mm. What you write comedy then. You know, oh, comedy the is well. What's that famous quote that some old actor apparently saying? Uh, someone he's dying on his deathbed, and and someone says, uh, you know, is it. it it must be hard dying, must be must be hard. He said, no, no, dying's not hard. Comedy is hard.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's a line that Barry Creighton uh, trots out very often, I yeah, think you probably yeah. found.
0: Yeah, and so so true, so true. Mm. Uh, I, the comedy, writing comedy, I guess, is based around character and situation. I mean, it's that, with a joke, the old rule of three, mm. you're setting up a, a, a situation or an expectation and then coming in with the punchline.
1: Yeah, I always um, compare a, a classic joke, you know, set up for tag, it, it, as as moving like a knight in chess. You know, you go two steps, one, two, and then suddenly you go sideways. Hmm. And that's sort of where the joke is, you know. I mean, I sent my wife to the West Indies, old Jamaica, no, she went over on a court. There's your classic three-step thing, yeah. right? Yeah. And the surprise factor is what you laugh at, I think. What mm-hmm. makes you laugh.
0: Can you go too far with the joke? You mean as far as gross um, taste or... Gross tastes or, um, yeah, offending somebody? I suppose that that then depends on the receiver of the joke, doesn't it? And what what their personal... Um,
1: I think you can, you can... I don't think you can go too far. I mean, really horrible things you can still get laughs from. And... And you think oh shit i shouldn't be laughing but it is funny or that sort of thing um no i think look as long as the, the as long as it works uh go for it yeah. you know i remember um we wrote a thing once about we were talking about some uh, the, the woman well, i was at a show called Bullpit, and and we had um the manageress of the nursing home, uh, retirement village talking about one of her rivals who was managing one of the better ones saying that she, she was a, a, a real tramp. She's the one that put the suck into success. <laughs> and I remember I thought, of, that's fucking great. It's a really good line. I wish I'd thought of this before, you know, yeah, yeah. and, um, and, you know, within uh, when the script was finished, uh, John Holmes was on the phone from Channel 7 saying, Oh, boys, um, <laughs> it's about the suck into success. Yes, it's funny, though, John. Yes, yes, all right. Okay, fine. So we put it in and went to it.
0: I thought it was good. Very funny. Mm. Very funny.
1: Um, You'll use it one day. I will use and it. And is... everyone is said, Gee, he's a witty guy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, uh, in this day and age of political correctness, mm, horrible, it's yeah. killed a lot of humour. Yeah, do, do of course you think? It happens, yes. um, It's put a lot of uh, comedy People are frightened here. to do jokes now. Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, and, I mean, it's funny, people say to me who know that I was involved with, say, Kingswood Country, that they they say, oh, you'd never get away with that now. And I said, well, why not? It's funny. Um, and... Um, and then oh no, you know, you can't say things like WOG and so on. And I said, Well, Nick Giannopoulos made a career out of WOG, you yes. <laughs> know.
0: And desensitised the term. Yeah. Right? yeah.
1: And uh and in fact even Nick actually said to me one day, uh, yes, all right, you said WOG on television before we did. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't look, I don't think I think yes, all the people are scared to say things and, and it is we, it's it's unnatural, I reckon. Mm. I think you've got to be able to say, oh, I hate that, or I like that, or isn't that funny? Or, you know, I mean, it's tragic that someone slips on a banana peel and falls over, but it's also funny, you mm. know. Mm, mm, mm. But now people say, oh, you, shouldn't laugh. you know, think about the poor banana peel, <laughs> 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 squashed under a guy's heel. Did you see his boots? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes, um, laughter is the best medicine, isn't it? And yeah. If that's taken away from us, then... Um...
1: Also good for hangovers.
0: <laughs> Just to, to to oxygenate the blood. I don't know. <laughs> you forget
1: you've got a hangover when you laugh.
0: <laughs> Tony, when did you first, um, or the, when did the family first get a television?
1: Uh, well, I spent... Um, Uh, Some of my earlier years in Canada where television came in, you know, earlier than Australia. So I remember seeing that when I was very young. And um, when did we get a television? I think it was the years that, uh, what was it, 56? Yeah, did you have it for the Olympics? Yeah, it started for the Olympics. Um, I remember talking to an old bloke, Arthur Windham, at the ABC who was director of Radio National or something at the time. He, in fact, commissioned what became known as the Naked Vicar Show. But um, he said that in, back in 1956, they, uh, there used to be a fight with the camera crews of the ABC as to who would get the zoom lens for
0: the day to cover the Olympics. Right. They had one zoom. One lens. zoom.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All the rest were those old turret cameras.
0: They were the... Uh... The early days mm. so did you did, was your did you have much of a diet of television in those early days um, uh, I'm, I'm yes thinking-
1: I used to wo- religiously watch things like um, Hancock half hour uh, um, and um, uh, Bill Coe's uh, Phil Silver show or well technically what was its real name uh, you 'll never get rich um, uh, Bill you fascinated me because of you know his amazing de- delivery. I mean, you've
0: seen Phil Sill, Bill Bilko. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I, and I Bill... still
1: I actually, I bought a collection only just last year.
0: And Bill was, it was sort of a hybrid of um, sketch and sitcom, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Because of course he'd, he'd come out of Vaudeville, and
1: uh... mm, that's right. Yeah. yeah, it's a boring um, biography to read, actually. Exactly. <laughs> <Surprise>. <laughs> disappointingly.
0: Well, a lot, of, a lot of great comics did have quite boring lives, didn't they? Or... Uh,
1: yeah. I've just actually finished reading um, the second or third Buster Keaton um, uh, biography, yeah. and uh, he he was he had a bizarre life, being thrown around the stage by his parents. I mean, it was a, a violent act. Right. He, they used to pick up the kid and throw him across the, the stage. And that's where he got the stone face thing from, you know, that he would never show pain emotion, or yeah. emotion. Yeah.
0: Um, but a great comic, yeah, one of the, one of the greats, of
1: yeah. The and and he talks about how later in life he um, he would be called in to try and fix up scenes that, that that should be funny but weren't working for some reason or other and he'd always be able to say oh well you obviously you're doing that and that and yeah. you should be doing this and this and they went oh thanks you know. yeah. sending money no
0: <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned bilko uh mikhail's navy also
1: i wasn't keen on mikhail's navy because i uh, i thought that ernie borg name was far too big or something. I don't know, there was something about him I didn't like. Yeah. The, what's his name, Tim Conway was in that, wasn't he? He was great. Yeah. You know, even the character that he had in that was good. Yes. But I remember when we first started doing sitcoms or before we even started doing a sitcom, uh, Riley and I, Gary Riley that is, um, we, uh, would sit and watch Lucy, Happy Days, McHale's Navy, Laverne and Shirley, all of those sitcoms that, that ran for years, to to look at how they shot them, because we were convinced that the people here in Australia that were shooting sitcoms didn't know how to shoot them, because... Uh, they they all kept talking about do you shoot the action or the reaction or the you know the person delivering the line or the, or the one receiving it and in fact you should you should be shooting the whole fucking thing at the same time and in all comedy if you look at any of those classic sitcoms they all always shot riggedy really wide like reverse angle 12 shots you know and um and you like you never saw lucy you know think as close up, a close up, up yeah you like you it was almost full body all the time and there's something about the performances the, the the noise of comedy i think is is important but also the fact that um so you can see it but but because the acting is a bit bigger than you know drama guys that grunt in an cl- extreme close up you know um uh, because the performances are generally much bigger uh it 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 's not as confronting i suppose to the to the viewer if it 's in a wide shot the,
0: the playing of comedy uh in a theater you 're able to direct the focus uh, through through lights and and, and well and, and stage yes also
1: you can choose where you 're going to look in a exactly
0: theater. whereas with with television comedy, you have to do that work for the viewer at home don 't you um <clears throat> yes. But, but, but once again, though, because comedy
1: needs to be shot wide, you know, you still got that choice that you're making. You, you know, is Lucy or, or Desi, you know, what, who is doing what? And uh, I don't know why, but uh, it's, it's, it's just an important thing, I, th- I believe, with comedy. And if you look at any comedy now, even, you know, contemporary stuff, it's always shot wider than drama
0: and And film before a, a live studio audience too would be paramount to to making that comedy work for the performers, yeah. especially. oh yes,
1: it lifts the performers yeah. I remember years ago um, when Graham was doing uh, he just signed to do the um, the the news thing that he did, what was it called coast to coast or yeah. It was it had another name before that graham kennedy's news show or something it was it was nine o'clock or... it
0: should be the john mangos and ken Sutcliffe.
1: yeah yeah and graham had agreed to do it and anyway um, i remember someone saying you know graham's just not firing and i said because you haven't got an audience there go and go around the studio, go around the the office and drag in 20 people and you'll see him lift. Oh, no, we can't do that. I said, well, it's the only thing that's going to make Graham work. And eventually they did because they used to pre-tape the show. That was part of the deal with Graham, so that he could go out for dinner, you know. But um, uh, anyway, they got half a dozen people or 20 people to sit there and, and suddenly Graham lifted. So... Then it became a, uh, you know, the only show, news show in the world, uh, news bulletin that had an audience, audience, and the audiences, you know, all loved Graham, so they had no trouble getting an audience to come
0: in. Mm. The the laugh track is a fascinating device. Also, I recall, you know, growing up, you'd watch repeats of Bewitched, occasion or Mm. something, and it wouldn't have a laugh track for some reason, and for some reason, it didn't seem as funny as it normally was.
1: No. I've always thought that it's laugh tracks um, are important with television because, or an audience. It doesn't matter whether it's artificially sweetened or, or if it's a live audience, it's still a laugh track, you know, whichever way you look at it. But you don't see it on movies, right? And it's because movies are designed to be played to a mass audience. Mm-hmm. And you get, with the bigger the group of people, the bigger the laugh you're going to get. Well, if there's just you and a cheese sandwich sitting on the couch, you know, it helps to have another 200 people laughing in your living room.
0: Do you watch much television now? No.
1: No? Um, The last time we watched TV was May the 21st.
0: Was that for a special occasion?
1: Yes, it was the election. Right. I wanted to make sure that <laughs> Morrison was fucked. <laughs> but, uh, no, um, we haven't watched television since then. Uh, although the other day I just I did buy. If you see that box right up on the top and the right.
0: Oh yes. Uh, cheers. The, the whole collection of Cheers. So, in your estimation, that's one a of great, the great, great one of
1: the great shows ever. Yeah. Cheers. Taxi was pretty good.
0: Cheers also um, had an offshoot. Another my favourite sitcom, Frasier. Oh, yeah, yeah, masterful. I mean, yeah. e- every episode is a comic farce.
1: Mm. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> Cheers was. It was also Graham Kennedy's favourite show, right. and um, he always used to get tapes mysteriously pirated from one of the networks. Would give them to him, yeah. and then I'd borrow them. But I was walking past. Sanity Records a couple of weeks ago, and I saw that box. and I thought, yes, I have to
0: have that. Yeah. It's masterful writing, isn't it? Every mm. second or third line is is a, mm. a belly laugh.
1: Well, <clears throat> yeah, I, the the frequency of laughs is very important in comedy. We've worked out. Mm. You really need to get something happening every twenty seconds or so, and um, and, <clears throat> and if you don't have that. You don't you don't seem to have the pace that makes the thing gives gives a show an energy. Um, you, you need to have that constant laughter bubbling along. It doesn't have to be a huge roaring laugh, you know. I mean, let's face it, a, like a half second titter is is great, you yeah. know, because yeah. it's Just there. Just to keep the energy going. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And comedy needs that energy. I mean, it needs energy like like it needs. Uh, like it needs question marks. I mean, because every second line in a comedy has is, is got a question mark after it. Because it's, it's feeding the tag. Yeah.
0: Born in Brisbane, Tony? Melbourne. Melbourne, yeah Well, there you go. I'll cross that off my research.
1: <laughs> where did you get that from? I, I worked in Brisbane for George Patterson's The Adventist.
0: That's where you were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a horrible in... place. So you it's went... nice now. Brisbane's nice. now. Yeah,
1: it wasn't there.
0: Yeah, it's grown as a. As
1: yeah, a city. well, Expo is the thing that did yeah. that. That um, made Brisbane. I did some shows at at, at Expo. Um, actually, with for Kevin Jacobson, right. Kevin um, had a, negotiated a contract with the Queensland government to put some shows on. At the, did you ever go to Expo? No, no. Oh, well, they had this dreadful stage out in the river. Tiny stage, allegedly designed by John Truscott, the famous Australian uh, Academy Award-winning desi- designer, yes. yeah. But there was no backstage, and I had a cast of about, I don't know, 60 or something, and it was awful. Anyway, uh, so Kevin, much to his surprise, gets this contract to put some shows on for the Queensland government, three shows. And... Um, and then suddenly I'm roped in to produce them, you know, uh, because Kevin's oh, I don't know anything about television. <laughs> All that it was, it was quite good shows, actually. The a headline actors. Oh, I had uh, oh, John Denver was in right. um, a number of reasonably stellar people.
0: They're about to host the Olympics, too. To so Brisbane. A- Brisbane. Yeah. Um, are they when? Um, coming up. Got, they're have a host city. Oh, are they? See, if you've watched television, you don't. <laughs> I don't care. I'm, I'm
1: really not interested in the Olympics. <laughs> All those
0: people that smell like vapor rub, you know, <laughs> and sweat. Sorry. Uh, so working for George Patterson, th- that took you to Brisbane then, did you, for, for work? Yeah,
1: well, well, I worked in agencies. Um, when, when, uh, when I sort of got out of school and so on, I went to art school. the Melbourne Institute of Technology, RMIT, and um, was looking at doing art there. And in those days, I wanted to get into agencies because I thought advertising would be interesting. And, and you can do design work and write. And, um, uh, so I ended up, you know, writing at various agencies, um, until, and, and then, and they pay ridiculous money, enormous money, you know, for thinking up some, how to sell some fucking chocolate bar or something. Mad Men. Yeah. Well, I, I never saw that show. Right. I? Okay. But, um, uh, so I worked for a number of different agencies and, um. And through that got involved with Box, for instance, because I was at the agency that handled BP and they, but you know, all the Bob Dyer's, everything had a BP logo on it and the whole set, if you ever remember watching that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we used to have to shoot Bob and Dolly uh, pointing against the sky, you know, and then you'd cut them into... Uh, what they used to call the BP newsreels, which were uh, uh, they basically commercials, because you can tie a, an oil company back to anything, really. You know, like I remember shots and stuff about in the Barossa, and and, uh, and Bob and Dolly dutifully pointing at the grapevines and things like that, because BP makes some sort of spray, you know, and. So, and even if they don't make it spray, you know, there's a truck that drives through powered by BP, you know. Um,
0: So you've got a catalogue of shots that you can use for any occasion.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. and we used to shoot it on Bob's place down in um, Beauty Point. Bosman.
0: A commercial I say, too would have a definite structure, a beginning, a middle and an
1: end. Yes, well, uh, some American genius, I suppose it was, said that advertising any ad, whether it's a commercial or a press ad or a magazine or whatever it was, uh, had to work with um, a formula of AIDA, and that is to attention, get the people's attention, interest them in the product um build the desire for the product and then the the action needed like to buy who you who you ring to what dealer you go to that sort of thing it was aida and that's you know it's basically who cares i mean it's advertising anyway i mean i got to the stage where i was once making lots of money but and but then also we were sending stuff in, and we were doing bits and pieces for Auntie Jack and so on and 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 I would have gone into comedy a lot earlier if I could make the money out of it, but you know you can't get into a comedy show without a track record and you can't get a track record without the comedy show, you know one of them but uh I got to the stage with advertising where they're paying all this dough and And I was meant to be thinking about selling PK, right? PK chewing gum. And I found sitting there the second day thinking about this. I thought, why am I doing this? You know, working out how to sell the world's most useless product. You know, chewing gum really is, isn't it? You know, I mean.
0: It's a a minute, two minutes of um, yeah, and then spread it out
1: so that someone yeah. can get it stuck on, on their, their shoe. Yeah, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And who uh, was Marshall McLuhan? I think wrote that television was chewing gum for the eyes. because <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> so much rubbish, of it. Yeah, it's a yeah. great line. Yeah. I wish I'd said it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, with with writing with with the advertising. You're having your first experiences at writing catchphrases too, I suppose, yeah. which become such a device in, in sitcoms. Yeah, slogans you know, and things so, like that. When yes. only the best will do. and you know, yeah. th- Those phrases which stick in our, our heads associated yes. with certain products. That's
1: right. It was very important. In fact, Graham Kennedy always used to say, you've got to have catchphrases. And if you think that all of the shows he ever did, like well, Blankety Blanks was chocolate with them. Cyril said, "Yeah, but yeah. you know, Peter the Phantom Puller, yeah. and all those um, things. Yeah. But that yeah. he he used to ask for to invent catchphrases
0: and things because so he, they would stay with the audience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, they're very important. And and also, I mean, people like in Kingswood Country. You know, the, the day we we wrote, Leave your money on the fridge' was was amazing because." Uh, the world has has never forgotten it. Yeah,
0: and no doubt that was said by fellas all around the nation. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. they still do. Yeah.
1: It's bizarre. I mean, I've had people like tradesmen working here or, you know, for I mean, it's years since we did Kingswood Country and, and and they say, oh, you know, like they see a, there's a logie over there, for instance, and they say, oh, shit, can I have a they always take a photo of it holding the logo yeah. yeah and um and they oh kingswood country leave your money on the fridge you know? and and for some reason or other it's there still and we still have thousands and thousands of dvds it's been great it's like a superannuation fund
0: there must be a great sense of satisfaction to um to have bit tradies quoting those lines still, you know. Yes, it is. Years it's later. strange,
1: isn't it? I mean, yeah. like forty years or something. Yeah.
0: You're socially significant. <laughs> well, I forgot about that. <laughs> so in the advertising world, you you meet your um, fellow co-writer and co creative in, in Gary Riley.
1: Yeah, Riley was um, directing commercials for a film company. And he had um, uh I've forgotten what our first commercial was together, but we got along very well. And um, so we both were plotting to get out of the advertising business because he was fed up with doing, you know, he had to shoot a Women's Weekly commercial every week, you know, in those days. And um, uh, so we, and we discovered that we both, you know, laughed at much the same thing or complimented each other with different aspects of humour and... um, Uh, sort of decided to to get together as much as we could and and came up with various show ideas and things like that and eventually went to the ABC and a few other places trying to flog them.
0: Was collaboration always an easy experience? Did you have your moments where you just disagreed?
1: No, not really, because generally um, we were battling a deadline.
0: You know
1: yeah, yeah i mean riley and i spent i don't know how many years across the desk from each other and um uh and because we were both lazy i think all writers are lazy Although then know, i just read ian fleming biography and he never stopped writing yeah. but um uh so you tend to write better when there's a deadline forcing you to do it i think yeah and and if you don't have a deadline, you think, oh, you know, I think I'll just sharpen the pencils for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and, or, oh, gee, that grass is looking long out there, you know. Um,
0: and that procrastination. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in a way, at the same time, it's bub- the ideas are bubbling away, aren't they? They're simmering. No, not really. Rich. No, <laughs> not even that. I don't think so. Right.
1: Um, I know Kingswood Country was always a nightmare for us because so that we could have one day off um, when we're in production. Because we, we would write it the week that we shot it, the same app. And um, so we could have Sunday off, because we'd shoot the the show from the previous week on the Saturday. we shoot it in front of two audiences. And then we'd have Sunday off. And then Monday morning we'd go into the office and and say, all right, what are we going to do this week? And um, and come up with a vague plot. Uh, I, only really so that if we needed to get a guest actor in or two actors or whatever it is, or we'll, we'll get a set made um, that we could ring through to talk to some agents about, can we have whoever it is? Right? Um or we'd talk to the uh, the set designer bloke about knocking up you know the corner of a cafe or something, and then um, we'd go home and then come back about eight o'clock at night on the Monday night and start writing, and we had to be finished by nine o'clock when the girl that worked for us got in and she would start typing the script. And we had, we worked out, we always had to be up to about page 20 or something, whatever it was, by nine o'clock the next morning. And so, because she was a quick typist, and so we would be finishing as she was slowly catching up to us. And and in the meantime...
0: You'd pull those all-nighters, would you? Yeah, Yeah,
1: every week. And so we'd finish the script about midday. And then... She would jump in her car and rush off and find a, there was a photocopy joint somewhere nearby That because you'd have to print 20 or 30 scripts. Yeah. And there'd also be a fleet of couriers standing outside the office because we had to send them out to the actors. This is on the Tuesday, yeah. right? Tuesday afternoon. And so the actors would all get their scripts on Tuesday evening or afternoon and they'd there, then we'd all turn up at rehearsal the next morning, rehearse for three days in a church hall in Belmain, and then um, go into the studio and rehearse on the set uh, Saturday morning, um, rehearse with cameras, obviously. And, um, and then uh, we used to get an audience in at about, I think it was about two o'clock and a couple of hundred people and we do the show and then we have a break and um, come back, a uh, meal break for the crew as well and the actors, and then come back with another audience, do the same show again. And, um, uh, and that was Saturday night. And then go home and head out Sunday off and start again on the
0: Monday. Repeat. Yeah. That's an incredible process.
1: Um well, yeah, it was something that later on we tried to get ahead, but never did uh so we were always writing week to week and uh but at one stage we were doing two shows a week um and that was hard, you know, and
0: it's only the two of you, isn't it, yeah. You see a lot of sitcoms now, they have huge writers. Oh, I know, I know. Different writers writing different episodes.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, when we were doing um, Naked Vicar show, I mean, a sketch show is a lot harder to do than a sitcom. Because a sitcom, you really only need a plot, you know, to... um, uh, And and then, but with a, with a, a sitcom, with a sketch show, you've got to have, I don't know, 20 different plots.
0: Yeah um and top, topicality also
1: oh not necessarily no. topical but as long as it's got to be funny though yeah, you know yeah. uh i mean how topical was was was, was monty python i mean yeah. it was not wasn't topical it was just silliness yeah. but um yeah the problem with 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 naked vicar was was the the writing you know it was driving us was crazy and then there's another bloke called doug edwards came sent some stuff in and and it was quite good so he he used to come in with i don't know two or three bits each week uh but we were doing the the the, the bulk of it and um uh, and it, it was driving us nuts we ended up going to Ted Thomas who was running the, the seven network at the time saying um uh, Ted we don't want to sign for another series and he said well, "Why? where are you going you're going to 9 ocean and I said no no we just don't want to do it. bullshit bullshit you're going where are, where are you going <laughs> and he said we'll, we'll pay whatever you're getting paid from them and I said We're not, we are cancelling our own show nobody cancels their own show I said we are because it was driving us mad.
0: Well, it was the risk of burnout too? Her, oh well, it finished when you're on top. Yeah, oh, it was just awful. Mm. Yeah, mm.
1: I mean, because it, with a sitcom, you've got your established characters. You can always bring in some other mad person, or some boring person, you know. Um, because uh, it, it's you, you're halfway there if you've got the characters. Um, but but the sketch show thing, you know, it was all right. You could do, you know, send up commercials and things like that. You just pinched <laughs> that stuff.
0: But Well, a lot of your early writing with Riley, you, you wrote satirical anti-ads. Yeah, that's you? right. For, for, for Double J. J. Double J, yeah. Yeah,
1: which became Triple J. Yeah. And it's now, there's also now another Double J.
0: <laughs> so what were some of the fictitious products that you created in those. Oh, we
1: didn't do, um, no, we used to use, um, I think we used to use the real product name from memory. I can't remember now. Um, but when we saw, we saw an ad saying that the, the ABC was going to do this youth oriented station and looking for interest from people. And so we thought, oh, well, let's write to them. And, um, so we decided that w- what what they would need is, particularly in breakfast, is to make it sound like a commercial breakfast. You know, because commercials on commercial radio, which I hate, and I think everybody hates commercials. Zany guys on, on you know, <laughs> the the breakfast crew, three people shouting at each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, I think in commercial radio and people are attuned to commercial radio, the energy that comes or the pace that comes from that is also created by the commercials, whether you like them or not. Yeah. And um, so we thought, oh, well, we should do some commercials, a whole lot of commercials to they could just drop them in. I mean, they were satirical and funny and that sort of thing. and And because we were doing um, Chuck Chunder of the Space Patrol or we were going to uh, as it transpired um, they booked us to do that at the same time as saying do these commercials and because we had Ross Higgins and Nolene Brown and uh, Roger Newcomb in doing the Chuck Chunder of the Space Patrol we, they all used to do a lot of voiceover work for commercials so we we could use that Talent that they had, or those talents.
0: Well, uh, Ross was Louis the Fly, wasn't
1: he? Ross was Louis the Fly. He was Snap Crackle and Pop. He was uh, Tony the Toucan. Uh, he was t- Tony the Tiger. Not t- no, not Tony the Toucan. Sam Toucan, Fruit Loops. Um, Tony the Tiger from Sugar Frosties. He, Mr. Uh, Mr. Sheen. Mr. Sheen yeah. Yes, he was Mr. Sheen. Uh, yeah Ross did lots of things and he was funny Ross uh, okay, I said to Ross one day rehearsal I heard you doing the silly voice on uh, you know whatever the commercial was he said well, how do you know it was me and 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 I said well uh, Ross I can recognise all your voices Oh, you, come on you did it didn't you oh no not necessarily and he used to get really pissed off when you picked his voice <laughs>
0: So these parody radio serials they they were your next step of writing sort of in in a longer format? We
1: we decided there should be a cereal a a breakfast cereal and um, we were talking about oh I don't know 2001 I suppose and and we thought, oh well, let's make it American language, um, and and all the heroes, all the American space heroes, seem to be called Chuck, you know, and Chuck Yeager, the bloke that did, yeah. um, what's it called, Right stuff, and so we thought, right, we'll call him Chuck, you know, it's American thing, and then for some reason or other, one day we just, you know, trying to work out a surname, and Chuck. And Chundakai. And we pissed ourselves, it was was the silliest name in the world. But everybody loved it. And uh, so we ended up writing 200 episodes of that and um, sold it all over Australia. Eventually, after the ABC had their run, um, they did a profit share and and, uh, we got money from commercial stations. I remember even. A bloke, an ABC announcer from Perth, sent us something or other a few years ago, and he was retiring, and they were getting a whole lot of people that he'd interviewed, and one of them was Charles Court, who was the the ex-premier. And and the premier, Charles Court, saying, well, Sir Charles, I think he was, um, saying, I remember when we were touring around during elections and things like that, driving everywhere, We'd always make sure we turned on Chuck Chunder on your show. <laughs> it was bizarre hearing Charles Court talking about Chuck Chunder.
0: Yes, you never know who's listening, do you? No. no. It weird. Tell me about Flash Nick from Jindavik.
1: Flash Nick from Jindavik was um, uh, Gary uh, McDonald, um, uh Rory and, uh, and Graham Bond. Rory O'Donoghue and, and Graham Bond. And they had this idea for a a couple of silly um, bush rangers. And I think they could have done a bit of a spin-off. I think it could have also come from a a sketch on the Artie Jack show because we were getting involved there as well with doing bits and pieces with, uh, what's his name, Morris Murphy, who at the time was head of comedy at the ABC. Um, And... um, So for some reason or other, they decided to make four shows, four half hours. Riley and I wrote two of them. And David Mitchell and Mel Morrow wrote one, I think, and I don't know who wrote the fourth one. And bizarrely, of course, many years later, you know, we all worked together on various things. I mean, I worked with David quite a lot.
0: On... um other sitcoms that yeah. are like writing here
1: yeah we uh, Mitchell and I wrote a show called My Three Wives which was a radio show with a stellar cast it had Maggie Dents Nicole Kidman Denise Drysdale Nolan Brown Kev Goldsby Doug Scroop um, it was a terrific show it was about a bloke who we based on Jeffrey Edelston, who was uh, at his fourth wedding, he presents the, 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 the Leanne Edelston character, who was wonderfully played by Nicole uh, with a Ferrari and she stands on the wrong uh, pedal and runs him over and kills him. And, um, and that's sort of all within the opening credit. And then he narrates the show from Beyond the grave. if it was a bizarre show. And it was very funny. Uh, and we made, oh, I don't know, I think we made about nine or ten of those. And the ABC wanted us to keep going, but then, this is with Mitchell, and um, then, I don't know, we lost interest and did something else, <laughs> cancelled our own show again. <laughs>
0: Naked Vicar Show started on radio, didn't it?
1: Yes, yeah, the ABC. Yeah, that that was a spin-off. After we started doing Chuck Chunder of the Space Patrol, uh, we wrote a number of other things. Oh, there was another long-running serial, hundreds of episodes of the novels of Fiona Wintergreen. She was a a fictitious writer, and she wrote these dreadful novels that um, Bob Hudson would read. Uh, a chapter each day on the show and, and would also, because it was all that uh, florid prose from, from Mills and Boone sort of books.
0: Barbara Kant.
1: Yeah, all that. Yeah. And, um, uh, and, but uh, Bob would also do asides about how dreadful this was and, and comment on the script. And which we'd also write the asides for him. So we were writing writing the character and the book, if you like. Yep. And they had bizarre titles. The first one we wrote was Jealous Throbs the Heart. Then there was Damned Be My Desire. That was a vampire book. <laughs> and we they syndicated these on radio around the country. And that one got particular. That was banned in Geelong for some reason. Only Geelong. Yes, because we were sacrificing a virgin in a church or something. I don't know, I can't remember. It was all the cliches of all those sorts of things. Yeah. And then um, Behold the Cruel Heart. Um, oh, I can't remember. We did a number of books, allegedly, and, and every crazy thing that we could think of, but done very seriously.
0: So on the success of those parodies, you were asked to write the. Uh...
1: Oh yes, well Arthur Wyndham, who was the head of ABC Radio One at the time, and also overseeing Double J. After being amazed at the amount of stuff we were turning out, because we were churning out an enormous enormous amount of stuff every week, and because uh, we didn't, and they were getting wind, they were whinging about how much money we were charging, and, or. We, uh, and because we weren't on staff, you know, we didn't want to go on staff. And then um, Arthur rang us and said, you know, you guys are churning out all this stuff. Why don't you do a half-hour show? And we said, oh, well, yeah, all right. Um, anyway, we thought about it for a couple of days and went back to him and said, uh, it's called The Naked Vicar Show. It's a sketch show. We want an band. And we want some singers. And we'll put the whole thing together and package it to you. And um, uh, so we started doing that. It was hard because we had to write two half hours a week. Because the only way we could make the budget work would be to record two shows at a time. um, Because it was too expensive to just go in and record one show with an audience and so on.
0: I'm not going to suggest that writing for television is any easier than writing for radio but it must open up more opportunities for for humor visual humor television, television. Yeah, yeah.
1: obviously yeah, yeah. um t- radio's harder to write right. um because you haven't got the pictures yeah and you know you, you can use and with but with television I mean you can just with your lighting and your set, you can immediately say, this is the situation. Um, And whereas with radio, you've got to try and tell people what the situation is before you can actually do the jokes, you know. Uh, And also in Australia, you don't have um, accents to play with. You know, most people sound much the same. You know, it's not like class structure of Britain or, or you know, the the Midwest and the down south Americans and so on, because you've got lots of different accents to play with in America as well, which um, have
0: that shorthand for character. Yes, yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: and and so tele- so radio is harder because of that, I reckon. Um,
0: so ABC weren't keen to pick up a the television version of.
1: No, no, we went to them and said, look, why don't we do it on television? And they said, oh, no, we don't like it. This is an ABC TV mob. And and then we went to... um, Oh, well, we had this bizarre circumstance where the Grundy organisation rang us and said, you blokes ever thought about doing Naked Vicar show on television? And we said, yeah, we have actually. Of course we have. Uh, and they they said, oh, well, uh, why don't you do it with us? And we said, why? <laughs> I didn't want to work with Reg, the thief. You know, he stole all those shows from America. Anyway, um, uh, next thing we know, um, a bloke whose name I didn't think I'd ever forget rings from Grundy's. Couple of weeks later, and says, "Boys, we've sold the show for you." So "What do you mean?" I said, "Naked Vicar show, Seven Network, bought it." I said, "Well, hang on."
0: We didn't it, ask you to act. This is our your show.
1: <laughs> you say you've sold it. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? And we're going. No, you you can't sell something you don't own. Or yeah. well, we have no agreement. There's no contract. Boys, don't worry about it. We'll sort that out later. And we were furious, of course. And so um, I rang Ted Thomas at the Seven Network, who I'd never met before. And, uh, and I said, look, I want to talk to... who are you, Tony? said, so I've never heard of you, know, the, the girl in the desk or something. And I said, look, this is very important. It's a matter of plagiarism and litigation and I really need to talk to Ted Thomas. So he came on the line, and I said, look, Grundy's apparently have sold Naked Vickership. Yeah, yeah, he said we bought it, yeah. I said, well, um, I have to tell you that, that this is the greatest ripoff in the history of the world because we have no agreement with Grundy's. We didn't even know they were talking to you. And then they ring and say, you've bought this show. Oh, shit, he said. Anyway, so he started shouting at us and you can't pull out. And we said, we haven't got... We're not pulling out of anything. anything. We haven't got a deal to pull out of. (laughs) Anyway, so we ended up signing to do... uh, with RS Productions, our company, with... with,
0: Riley Sattler. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And and went on to huge success. And win the Logie for Naked Vicar, Um, Naked Vicar,
1: Vicar we won... um, Something we won some awards for. I've forgotten what they were. They were the like logies or something. No, we did, We got we got the log We got a, a couple of logies for Kingswood Country.
0: The character of Ted Bullpit was, yes. was born on, on Naked Vicar, wasn't it?
1: Yes. Um, yes. The name. I worked with a bloke at George Patterson's in Brisbane called Bruce Bullpit, and I thought this is the greatest name in the history of the world. Not unlike
0: bullshit. No,
1: indeed. <laughs> and the Bullpits were quite well-known, fam- well-respected families in Bundaberg. He was involved in the sugar business. What a surprise! And uh, anyway, so we thought Bullpit. This is a great name. So years later, when we invented the characters um, that went on to become the Kingswood Country characters, they were in. a, a, a a semi-regular sketch we used to do uh, and when we discovered that uh, where the son would ask for the car keys and you know the Kingswood, you're not taking the Kingswood. i just shampooed the number plate or you know all those ridiculous things and um uh so ted was born there i don't think we ever actually gave them names and apart from their christian names bullpit we used in kingswood and then Mr. Bullpit himself tried to sue us, and it was because oh. <laughs> we had a Bruno, the the wog in in Kingswood Country, the son-in-law, the Italian son-in-law, and, um, and and part of the the uh, the legal letter that we got from Mr. Bullpit's counsel. Said that you know we note that you have also stolen the name of his dog, Bruno. The <laughs> dog we well, didn't know he had a dog called Bruno. Bruno who'd have thought?
0: <laughs> Naked Vicar opened with the the three uh, leading uh, players yeah. on stools. Um, Nolene looking fabulous as she always does, and then the two gentlemen in sartorial splendor in safari suits. Yes. Was that a deliberate choice, or was it the, the fashion of the time?
1: Um, I was a bit of both, I think um, we didn't want to do ties and we thought it was better to have some sort of uniformity. But um, yeah, I, I don't know why we did that. Well, can't answer it.
0: I've retained it all these it's years. Probably because it was cheap. <laughs> the, the, the title of the show, Naked Vicar, has yes. interesting origins.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Yes, that's right. We read this ridiculous story in a newspaper about how a priest in Paris, I think it was, was found dead in uh, a prostitute's bedroom. And the Catholic Church did a a deep investigation and discovered that that the the true story behind this was the fact that the prostitute, the parishioner, the, the girl involved, was very distressed and had rung the priest, and said, "I'm very distressed. I really need some pastoral help." And the priest said, "I'll be there in a flash," and ran through the streets of Paris in midsummer, which is you know Paris when it sizzles, and um, rushes up the stairs to the girl's room, and where she's lying naked on the bed, of course, because it's so hot, and. And he bursts into the bedroom and says, oh, my God, it's hot. And takes off his clothes and promptly has a heart attack and dies. And so he's found naked in this woman. A naked vicar? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was a priest. (laughs) uh, And we thought this is the most ridiculous story. Because the church trotted it out as the the reality of the situation. And we just thought naked vicar sounds funny. You know, there's a
0: case in it. It's funnier than nude priest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So some words are funny. Like duck is funny, you know. But hen isn't.
0: Yeah, it's the alliteration too. I suppose it? so. Is, is um.
1: Mm. do
0: Yeah. The science of comedy.
1: Yeah, I don't think there is a lot of science to it. It's, it still comes down to what makes you laugh. Yeah.
0: Um, a show that I wasn't aware of was Graham Kennedy's R.S. Playhouse. Oh, yes. Yeah. So so that you were asked to write a Tonight Show for him, I believe.
1: Oh, and yes, we did, actually.
0: he requested to do some of your serials.
1: Um, uh, no. we. Uh, he he uh, was asked to do a Tonight Show because it was at Channel 10 when he was doing Blankety Blanks. And... Uh, John Singleton was doing a, an alleged Tonight Show on Saturday nights. As host, yeah. was he, right? Yeah, and it was a sort of Yobo show. I mean, John, you know, you yeah. know King Yobbo. Uh, and, um, and they used to do live crosses to the greyhound races and things like that. I mean, and anyway, so John was locked up because he got into a fight or something at a In Adelaide, somewhere, I seem to recall. And so they panicked and they said to Graham, Look, if we give you a a truckload of money, will you do the show on Saturday night? And he went, Oh, yeah, all right. But I want Riley and Sattler to write it. And I want Nolene. And I want, um, um, who else was in it? I think Stuart, too. Waxter. Waxter. But anyway, so, with, we, Graham rings us and says, You know, we've got to. And we said, Well, we're writing another show. Like, oh, you yeah, will, please, you know, just this once. So he did that. And then around the same time, Graham used to come and stay with us when we, we had a house just up the road, actually, in Barrel. And he used to come and stay with us uh, and used to sit out in the garden and drink beer and read a book all day. And he's, I said that we we'd just been writing. We decided we went back, went to the ABC, and said, "Well, we've got an idea. Let's write a bunch of different comedies as a as a Playhouse series, and then if the chances are, we're going to find something in one of those shows that we can develop into a sitcom." Yep. And also, because radio is cheaper to do than television, you know, so we can try out all these things. So Graham's sitting under the tree drinking and reading and then says to me, what are you doing now? He said, oh, well, we've just actually finished reading, writing these things. And he said, what are they? And I told him, and he said, can I read them? And we'd written about three or four at that time. And, and he said, I'll do these. He said, well, we've already started recording them. Oh, um, well, can I, can I do the rest of them? And I said, well, anyway, we went to the ABC and said, guess what, Graham Kennedy wants to do them. Oh, we can't afford Graham. Well, he'll do it for whatever it was. It was fuck all. Yeah. And, and they said, oh, we don't really need Graham. I said, well, we do. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, because, you know, if you've got the biggest star in the country, Wanting to do something.
0: Why would you say no? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I said, look, it's going to cost us fuck all to chuck out the shows that we'd recorded two or three, I think. I think two. maybe. Not going to cost... cost, Maybe a couple of thousand bucks to chuck them out and redo them with Graham. Anyway, we had to actually talk them into taking, you know, the biggest name (laughs) in the country. It was bizarre. Anyway, we did that and um, he... Harry Miller wanted wanted Graham's name in the title, but we'd already signed to do a show called RS Playhouse, and so it became Graham Kennedy's RS Playhouse, and we had a lot of really good people in that too. From uh, oh, who was in there? Ferrier, Um, Noel Ferrier, Stuart Wagstaff, Jackie Weaver, Robin Nevin, um, oh. Lots of people, I can't remember how many, but they're all great actors. And um, uh, it was a, a, a wonderful show and out of the eight or nine, we, we once again, we walked off after doing that because we got sick of it. And um, uh, we won um, Best Comedy from the Writers Guild two years in a row because the, we, it, the production happened over two years. Uh, sort of the, the late end of one year and the early part of the second year, yeah. so we were we could enter them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, great. And they were good shows.
0: Kingswood Country, did we did, largely focused on the kitchen and the living room? Did we? Did we get outside of that? Seven never minus. went outside. No, no, we so,
1: never saw outside the house. We never saw um, the car, even though it was a legendary car. We never saw his Greyhounds, Repco Lad and Gaya Cobra.
0: Um, it would be disappointing if we did, really, because um, it leaves it up to the imagination yes, of the audience. Doesn't I it?
1: suppose so, yeah. yeah. But we just invented these silly dogs that, that he allegedly used to take take for a walk in a wheelbarrow and um, wheel these dogs around because they were fat, apparently. And um, although we never <laughs> saw them. And, <laughs> And even in the opening titles of Kingswood Country, there's Ross washing the concrete Aboriginal on the front lawn. Neville. Neville. And um, I was stopped once at Brisbane Airport by Neville Bonner, the Aboriginal senator. And he said, is it true that Neville, the concrete Aboriginal, is named after me? And I said, yes, it is true. Yeah. Oh, great, he said. <laughs> and he was thrilled. Because we used to name things like when he had a goldfish, it was called Dawn after Dawn Fraser, of course. And, and um, uh, we always tried to put that sort of thing into the show. But not, not that it, you, we never called it, called the fish Dawn Fraser. It was just Dawn. You know. Yes, yes.
0: Implying that yeah. association, yeah, yeah, which everybody could recognise.
1: I don't think anybody did, really.
0: <laughs> um, other forays into the sitcom included Daily at Dawn, which Daily was set in a newspaper office. Yes, that's right. And Brass Monkeys, which is set on a base in Antarctica. Yeah. So both locations which um, would contribute to uh, a degree of tension, I guess, which also fuels comedy.
1: Um yeah, I suppose so. I mean, a bit of agro never helps, never hurts. And um, uh, we thought we wanted to do a, a show about Australians um, in a remote area and thought, well, the Antarctic's, you know, reasonably remote. And so we got in touch with the government and said, look, we've got to, we'd like to go down there and research this thing. And Oh, no, no, you know, you're, we only send scientists down there. Anyway, eventually I got this call saying, you guys still interested in doing the show about this? he said, yeah. he said, well, we've got, a, we've got a space for you and uh, for two on, on this supply ship. And then we had to have this ridiculous medical, which Riley failed because he had an ulcer, so he wasn't allowed to go. Because some guy died down there with a perforated ulcer or something. He's buried at Mawson Station. In right. fact, okay. there are three graves. There. But um, so I went with with, with a cameraman, and um, we, you know, jammed into this tiny ship, which is, oh, I've forgotten. It's about a hundred and fifty metres long, and and um, uh, it was built for twelve passengers, and they jammed twenty eight of us into it and uh and they roll terribly because they can't have um stabilizing fins on it because they get ripped off in the sea ice and so subsequently most people were seasick so th- yeah we went to uh, casey davis and Morrison stations and um just uh, picked up storylines and lifestyles and that sort of thing. The government came through and they supplied all of the clothing and stuff that all the, they issue and uh, made all the cast um, honorary expeditioners. Uh, there was a good cast too. Had Cole McEwen, Kev Goldsby, Graham Blundell, Paul Chubb. Uh, Bill Young, um, Margie McRae was a woman doctor, the, the only girl in the show. Um, was a great cast, in fact. Uh, and um, they were, all those blokes were all desperate uh, to, to you know be the, the funniest. And we had to keep, you know, use, just about using a cattle prodder to control them <laughs> in rehearsals.
0: Is it a challenge? Because that's a, quite a, an isolated Situation, yeah, uh, where a lot of those characters don't necessarily have um, experiences on a day to day basis other than what's happening on the base. So, does that limit what you can write about? No,
1: it? it's true, no, but really, because um, <clears throat> you can always, I mean, it's like a domestic sitcom, it all happens in a house, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, true, you know, or more,
0: and they are to a family to a degree, aren't they? yeah, even though they're workmates, yeah,
1: yeah, and you know. It's like, yeah, domestic sitcom, it doesn't really matter as long as you've got the same cast there. That so, And hopefully, build. the big problem with a new show is because it's not on television, the studio audiences don't know what to expect and they don't know that certain lines you put in there are actually going to be catchphrases. We, we know they're catchphrases, but the audience doesn't know because they haven't seen the show. Yeah. So but that's why the second series, if anything, is always a lot easier.
0: Yes, that first series is about setting up the...
1: Yeah, but the other thing is that because you're getting a different audience each time, it's not you're getting the... If you were getting the same audience every week, it would be great because they could grow with the characters. But they... But because you know, studio audiences are random deals that have got nothing else to do except <laughs> get on a bus and come in and watch a TV show um, in
0: 1997, you decided to revisit Ted Bullpit in a, a series called Pits. yes, that was a terrific show. He's taken into a, a retirement village, yes, so, so you still couldn't let go of that character, or why did you uh, want to revisit Ted? Oh, uh, because
1: Life? um. With, I read somewhere that um, the that retirement villages were big growth areas, and and I thought it would be really good to, uh, to get a, a variety of different characters um, within this uh, setting, and. Riley and I hadn't written a show together for for some time at that stage. And I rang him and said, look, I've got this idea about doing TED in a retirement village because retirement villages are springing up all over the place. Um, and so we sort of sat down and worked out vaguely a plot and then I went and researched with a retirement village place in, in, uh, up near seven when they were out at Epping and um, talked to a lot of the people there and we decided we'd like to use the retirement village as as the location because we were actually going to shoot outside and um and we wanted to have some of the the other the people that lived there as extras Mm. and anyway we we they they had to have a a meeting of all of the residents and we had to go and talk to them about how wonderful it was going to be and you know you can be an extra and you can be on television and all that and they voted on it and it just squeaked in because uh, others were saying oh you know we don't want show business people wandering around here and cameras and stuff anyway by the time we'd finished episode 26, they, the, the, the regular extras would also come into the studio and they had their own big dressing room and they were starting to whinge about the food. And, <laughs> you know, they'd turn into real actors. <laughs> and this old bloke, I remember, he said, you know, I, I was an accountant for 40 years or something. And he said, but I've never had so much fun.
0: Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Do you still have ideas germinating inside about yeah. other potential shows you could do?
1: Yeah, I, I've got this idea I want to do it's set in a men's shed. Yep. Men's shed, I heard of an interview with the bloke that started the men's sheds. And um, they, he they, they actually sp- uh, funded now, the men's shed organisation is funded by the federal government as running as an administration thing. An office with three people i think somewhere in newcastle anyway i did some research on it and uh and i spoke to these people and because uh, i thought i the good thing about men's is that they're all retired there's a lot of old actors <laughs> around, um and they're all from different backgrounds yeah. You know, there there's accountants and blokes that were tradesmen and, and others who were all kinds of different things. And uh one of the things, one one of the interesting things about men's sheds is that apparently that the the people, the the men who go there, their wives apparently thrilled because ever since they retired, they sit at home and watch TV or you know Get drive the drive the husband drive the wife crazy, and so. Um, they, most of the men's sheds do it two or three times a week I went to one which is set in the old poultry p- pavilion of the Mossvale Agricultural Society in, the, in the, at the showgrounds in Mossvale and, uh, and I sat there with them and made a lot of notes and stuff and then I had to talk to them about basing a show on them and so I wrote uh, I've written a few plots and I've worked out some characters, and then uh, we sold the house and we had to move, and so I haven't done anything on it since then. But I think it's a good idea.
0: I think it's a great idea.
1: And and the good thing is that uh, the the way that the bl- the blokes all interact, you know. And they actually don't do anything, you know. You read about how men's sheds are—they're oh, terrific. They do, they do projects for making toys for, you know, kids, and and oh, they were making something or other for the cricket club or whatever it was. And but in fact, in the times that I spent with them, they did nothing. They just lied about their careers, and drank terrible instant coffee, and uh, and told a few jokes and. Sat around and said, You oh, know, well, it's time to go. <laughs> and off they went. And there were one or two blokes playing with tools, but most of them didn't do anything. It was just a social thing. Yeah. And I thought, This is great, you know.
0: No, oh, a great vehicle, too, for um, our older actors who yeah. are often neglected. Um, and there's still, as you say, a whole legion of them mm. around. And they're all good. they're all good. Yeah, they're all great. All great. The industry can be ageist, can't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, and um, it's it's a pity, really, because I mean, look at Dad's Army,
0: for oh, instance. Yeah. One of the, the classics. Yeah. yeah. You can watch. I it mean, together.
1: when I first thought of the Men Shed thing, I thought, oh, well, it's Dad's Army with drills, hmm. you know, which it essentially is. Yeah. And uh, and you know, you get your pompous character who wants to run everything, and uh, and a few others, and you can put in all kinds of people. in there. And, and also I found that the other thing was that some, there, there were a few people that, the blokes who were younger blokes, but they had, say, bad industrial accidents or something and they yeah. couldn't work anymore. Yeah. Or they would had a, you know, a brain damage or something and they'd just sort of wander in and sit there and be part of things.
0: And that intergenerational thing too, yeah. Tony Sutler, thank you for um, this investigation into the craft of comedy and also for reflecting on uh, your uh, terrific career. I'm uh, uh, a big admirer, so it's been a real treat to, uh, to have a chat to, uh, to you. Oh, thank you. Um, socially significant. Keep, <laughs> keep on being significant, and hopefully we'll see uh, something coming out of Dad's shed.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't know whether I will or not. Nolan's very keen for me to do something. She keeps saying, you know, you keep spending the money... Get you out of the house. Do something. (laughs) Thanks, Tony. My pleasure, Peter.
0: It is such a privilege to record episodes like these. History, passion, insight and joy. Tony Sattler is one of the greats of Australian television sketch and situation comedy. As a writer, creator and producer. Stages very much appreciates his generosity of anecdote and spirit in recording this episode. There is always something new for us to learn, so if you enjoyed this conversation, you're bound to enjoy many more from the Stages Archive. You'll find conversations with Reg Livermore and Chloe Moore. just to name a few. Get the picture? And all with fascinating tales across all stages. Find the podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and from where you find your favourite podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe so that you may receive each new episode as it drops. Take the time to rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next week on Stages.